Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Three Grand Prix weekends, six races, 13 points between them. Pekka Banyaya and Jorge Martins' 2023 MotoGP World Championship fight has been getting better and better over the last few months. And this is the final triple header de Newmont coming up. The races in Malaysia, Qatar and Valencia over the remainder of November are going to settle everything and decide who wins this absolute epic. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm Matt Beer. With me as ever are Simon Patterson and Val Harunchi for an extra Between Races episode with us three to pretty much just get excited and make Larry predictions and have arguments about what's going to happen over the remaining races that will, will settle this season. Um, I was thinking before we started recording how much I'm enjoying this season to the extent that I think this might be my favourite MotoGP title battle of all time and all the time I've been a fan. I've been following MotoGP since 2006. Obviously, 2006 was very good, but I feel like this is the least predictable in a lot of ways. Now, in 2006, my prediction was thoroughly that Valentino Rossi was going to somehow win it, so that you know that didn't turn out as I expected. But uh, so many other title battles still feel like a foregone conclusion. Like, I never really thought Andrea De Vizioso would upstage Mark Marquez. 2020, I just thought, actually, Marquez would probably be beating all these people. This feels real and... Raw, it's two riders with flaws and brilliance in, in almost equal measure in different ways, having an, an absolute toe-to-toe that I cannot predict still. Uh, am I getting overexcited or is this the, the greatest title battle in two decades? Uh, potentially a little overexcited, I'd suspect. I mean, <laughs> in terms of in terms of like the, the pure adrenaline of it, in terms of the the you know the established characters of it. I know some people say that Becca Banya and Jorge Martin aren't as interesting as characters of the past, but I'd say more it's they've not really had the time yet to establish themselves as foils with sort of with history of rivalry and with very, you know, specific grievances, that kind of thing. It's it's never going to carry the the emotional weight of 2015, which wasn't just 2015. It was years and years and years of other baggage. And that kind of thing. Not that I'm saying that 2015 was massively enjoyable in the end. Yeah, but that, that um, as, as tense and exciting as that was, that comes off my favourites list for just being a little bit too grim as well in terms yeah. of what, what it kicked off. I mean, maybe you're right, actually, now that I think about it, because 2006 was more, you know, the championship being snatched away from one rider and then snatched away from another rider wasn't... We'll, we'll see how this one goes down to the wire. It could be exactly the same type of outcome but ideally you would have it hashed out on track in the closing in the closing laps in a in a good duel 20 oh was it 2017 the first WCOSA year with the with the with the near crash of Marquez in Valencia and then the crash of WCOSA that ended it that was pretty good even though it was a it was a long shot so it's you know it is a rare treat because it is looking like it really should go down to the final round and be relatively close. We can't count on it yet because it's very easy. Obviously, when you go into the penultimate round, there's always a chance that just one of the title contenders falls apart, and then the final round is a bit of a formality. Let's let's hope we don't get that. That wouldn't be, I think, a, a fitting conclusion. But yeah, maybe I, I I I said you were getting ahead of yourself, but I can't really think of an obvious upgrade but i think a lot of it depends on 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 the final impression made in in sapan qatar and uh, valencia yeah so maybe maybe i'm a little bit too cynical or maybe i'm a little bit too close to it or whatever but i don't know i'm i'm, I'm finding it hard to get too excited about it um <laughs> it, it i think for, for me um okay so, so last weekend in thailand was something different to be fair Last week in Thailand, we had the two championship contenders fighting for race wins and ultimately fighting for the championship together on track. But so much of the rest of the season has been, 
one of these guys is dominating and then does something stupid. And then the other guy dominates for a while until he does something stupid. It's, you know, yeah. we've had what, one other great battle between the two of them at Saxon Ring. Um, and that's really it. It's yeah. been a fairly... It's been a fairly odd year in the way that both of them have gone about it. Um, it's, you know, it. I wouldn't say that this year has been as enjoyable for me as, say, Davi versus Marquez in 2017, even though that year was much more, uh, it was, it was, you know, Marquez was always going to win it. Mm-hmm. But the racing was good and the battles between the two of them on track were fantastic. And all those last corner duels between the two of them where, you know, Mark would make the inevitable mistake and Duffy would make him pay for it. And that was good entertainment. Uh, and this year hasn't really had that for me. Like I said, Thailand has changed things a little bit, but, you know, the, the standout moments for the season when I look back at it are Martin's crash in uh in indonesia martin's crash when he got taken out by marquez at the first round uh bagnaya's crash in barcelona um you know it's it's been these moments where the guys have made mistakes not when they've had amazing fights um that, that have kind of defined this year yeah yeah simon's right i think i think ultimately you could very much paint this this title battle as i have i think before in previous podcasts as Basically, a bigger budget, bigger stage version of Augusto Fernandez versus Ayagura in in Moto Two last year. Just yeah. two riders trying to figure out how how they can hand the championship to to the other to the other guy. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be a title battle for the longest time. Then Banyaya's mistake in in Barcelona or whatever it was opened the door to it, and you know Banyaya being banged up. Then Martin's now succession of a couple of really bad Sundays before the really good Sunday in Thailand. But it those two bad Sundays ensured that it's not gotten away from Banyai yet, which it easily, very easily could have. So in a in a sense, it is not the pure ideal of two Titans going at it, if that makes sense. Not not to say that those guys are are bad or not fast or not entertaining or you know doing a bad job, but just it 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 is it does feel like it's being remembered for the for the errors and it's being defined by the errors. And there's a real chance that it there's one more error coming in the final three rounds that makes all the difference. And that's exactly what I was going to say. The, the, the other problem with it for me is the way that the whole thing has been compressed into the seven week period that we're right in the middle of right now. Um, having six rounds in seven races in a championship fight that's super, super close. It feels like, it feels like any mistake that anyone makes is going to be punished massively at any point during this, uh, it, it, it almost feels, you know, I don't want to compare it to like British Superbike showdown format, but it almost feels like that kind of level of artificial pressure being put in the two guys. Cause it's so intense. Um, you know, everyone is going to be going to Malaysia this weekend. Uh, especially if, you know, if, it, if we go to Malaysia and we get one of those typical Malaysian weekends where it rains on and off and there's patchy conditions or there's wet conditions, everyone is going to be thinking about the next two races while they're riding and the potential for injury and the potential that any, you know, any mistake can have. Um, and then we go to Qatar, which has been you know completely resurfaced. It's a bit of an unknown track. It throws another wild card into it as a result. And then we go to Valencia where the weather can be dreadful. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, Junior GP, uh, Junior Moto3 Championship was there this weekend and lost a day of track action because the wind speeds were too high, which is familiar. We've been there this year. But, you know, yeah, the the whole thing feels weirdly, um, weirdly compressed and weirdly artificial and quite uncomfortable um, as we, you know, as we go into these two three three weeks i'm excited i'm i'm interested i i i am quite keen to to see who who comes out on top and i think whoever does will be able to feel really proud about about the championship and you know it will it will feel legitimate whoever wins it will feel right i think but it's uh, it's been long i don't i don't even know if the compression is the part that worries me just you, you you burn yourself out on championship narratives when it's this long for some reason maybe maybe that's just the specifics of this particular year but it's 
it really it really feels like the start of the season even though it all counted the same amount of points belongs to some entirely different universe of races and entirely different MotoGP with you know entirely different protagonists and stuff like that um and obviously this you know the, this longevity has meant that Jorge Martin who didn't start the season in the best of shapes has managed to really gain some proper momentum so that's certainly part of it but it almost feels like when one of these two guys loses out it'll it'll feel a bit it'll be a bit of a bummer because you know 20 plus races at, at this kind of championship ish level and to have nothing to show for it in the end even though you know in, in the past maybe it will have felt like half the season like there's a half half season that's Banyaya's and half season that's Martins and previously that would have been not quite a full season but really close to a full season of running but right now we sort of have a a spring champion and a and a fall champion and one of the only one of these guys can be the the champion champion, and the other one's gonna have to lick their wounds and, and come back next year. Which, you know, it's it's that's how motorsport works in the in the modern day, but it, it is a bit a bit of a bummer for me personally. Someone pointed this out earlier, and I hadn't even realized it until they they did. So we're we're recording this on Monday the sixth of November. Um, you know, four days before the start of the final round of the season, and. The final round of the 2022 MotoGP Championship was the 6th of November. So, so the championship finished this day last year, but we've still got three rounds to go this year. That That's how stretched this season is. I would have found this so much harder, though, but for the fact that, like you say, this has become a compressed reset championship. At the end of August, Red Bull ring time, I felt the narrative of this season was done and this this long and intense string of flyaway races was just going to be with Banyaya having clinched the title somewhere around October and then probably winning all the other races because the Ducati was that strong a package and he was he was the fit works rider. Instead, we've actually had a really nice refresh. And like, I, I agree that the start of the season feels like, feels like it belongs to a different age, but actually in quite a good way, we've ended up with, with uh, a final chapter that's been so much better th- than all the rest. So we've got the, the theme of this final chapter has been Martin is the quicker guy, but he lets things slip. Banyaya is the more cerebral racer. You can't rule him out no matter where he qualifies. He's He's got things just about under control, but Martin keeps finding ways to either. And when he seems to have thrown it all away to just somehow get back in there with, with this amazing raw speed he has. Is that... Is this going to be how it how it goes from here? Do you can you see any sign of Martin kind of learning from Banyaya a bit more? Can you see Banyaya cracking, or is this is this going to be this kind of uh, Simon? You've phrased it before as the absolute monster Martin who eats metal for breakfast and stuff versus the the thinking man's champion Banyaya. Yeah, um, I, I think we said it last week. Uh, I think that Martin is faster, but I think that Banyaya is better right now, and. It depends on how that plays out over the next few rounds or whether or not Martin can get smarter, basically. Um, you know, we, we talked uh, post-race in... Uh, after last weekend, we, we talked about how it kind of looked like Martin was experimenting for the first time with controlling the pace at the front and, and trying to be a bit more Bagnaya-esque, uh, you know, and how he managed things. But then we've we've also heard him... Uh, you know, say at points this year, like in, in Mandalika, I think when he crashed out of the race, he admitted afterwards that he hadn't bothered to watch back the race um, because he crashed out of it, which is not how you go about learning and improving. So um, it, it basically, for me, the championship will be decided on how much Martin can learn in the next three rounds, how much he's learned this season and how much he can put that into practice and how smart he can be. Because... You look at the circuits that we've got coming up and you have to think that, you know, at least two of them, maybe all three of them, the races where they can be controlled very well, the races that in theory should suit that sort of Bagnaya-esque, uh, you know, Dovey-esque uh, approach to, to battling. Um, you would expect Qatar can be completely controlled because of the nature of the place because it's long and it's dusty and it's, you know, it burns tires out. Uh, you would expect the same thing from Malaysia, although obviously rain can play a factor and, and can mess that up. And then, you know, we finished the championship at, I don't think I've been shy in the past at saying a circuit that I absolutely hate finishing the championship at because it's kind of processional and boring and dull and, 
yeah, I mean, Harath is right there. Why did we not finish the championship at Harath? But that, that's that's the subject for a different podcast. Um, the, there's circuits that on paper for me suit Bagnaya's current approach. And it, it all comes down to whether or not Martin can replicate enough of that Bagnaya approach to manage what is probably a greater speed right now. I I don't think Martin is faster, but I think the way the, the place I'm coming from is we need to define faster to say to say what that means. We need to define specifically the word. Is Martin currently faster over one lap in qualifying trim? Absolutely, 100%. Is Martin currently faster over a 10-lap sprint? Absolutely, 100%. He's won five out of five of the last one. He's outscored Banyaya by 32 points in that five-sprint uh, stint. And Phillip Island sprint would have also been his. I think it's fairly safe to say. So that would have been six out of six. Is Martin faster over a 20-plus lap? MotoGP Grand Prix, I am, I'm not sure at all. I'm genuinely not, not at all convinced. And that is the, maybe that is not the part that shows pure speed. So maybe when we say faster, we mean this, you know, pure burst of pace. We usually mean, I think, single lap, I would say. Single lap or a collection of fast laps. But it's the 20 plus laps that award the biggest amount of points. And yeah. over those 20 plus laps, I... Okay, I don't, it's it's closer than it would have been at the start of the season, but I'm not in, I'm not comfortable betting against Banyaya over a full race distance on the on the average circuit. Let's put it that way. On the average circuit, I think that's still with you know with the average amount of tire wear, I I still like Banyaya's chances, even if he starts two or three places behind. He's just just very good at those Sunday races, very very good, uh, and I. I would not be surprised if that's what comes to to define the the championship outcome. At the same time, the the three tracks that we finish at are so we've got Malaysia, where Martin was on pole last year, I believe, and was leading by over a second when he chucked it down the road. We have uh, Qatar, where Martin, uh, in in his second round in MotoGP, was on pole position and led most of the race before ultimately having to settle for a podium. And we have Valencia, where Martin, I think, has never been off pole in MotoGP or something like that, and is just reliably, routinely good there. Uh, those three rounds, at the very least, suggest to me that there's a very good chance that Martin ends up at eight out of eight to finish the you know the sprint streak, basically. I would not be shocked at all if he wins the, the three remaining sprints. And if he does that, then... It's basically a straight fight in the in the main races because the the points the points lead will be gone through that. Uh, but I find it again. I the problem is on Sundays, Banyaya is the one you'd maybe expect a little bit more out of. Again, it's very conditioned on the grid position. You can't really take them separately, and I think I think in Banyaya starts from a more normal grid position in in thailand for instance i think banyaya wins that race but he didn't and that's very much part of it he didn't not because of some stroke of unluck or whatever but because he didn't qualify well enough and he isn't qualifying well enough whereas martin is very comfortably putting it on pole over and over and over again which just makes his life easier and makes whatever sunday deficiencies he may have relative to banyaya and i suspect he does but they don't matter nearly as much when Banyai is four or five bikes behind on the opening lap. So that's, you know, it's it's an interesting dynamic, but I'm 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 not quite comfortable painting it in the in the in the terms of faster versus more cerebral. It's just, you know, different different types of edges that may well not matter in the end if one of them just makes one major mistake that decides it. That's the problem. Which feels to me like over the six remaining races, so the three sprints and the three Grand Prix, it does feel to me like there's too much room for somebody to leave massive points on the table and for that to decide the whole thing. So on that basis, Val, would you say you are or you aren't expecting this to go down to the wire? Uh, no. Uh, what do you mean by go down to the wire? Like mathematically or final lap? Mathematically, are we, are we still... Well, not down to the... I think final lap is a, is a big ask even for a season like this. But to, to line up on the grid for the Grand Prix race at Valencia with this still mathematically open? I th- I think so. I would say yes, but I, I would not be surprised if it's open, but it's a 20-point gap and one of the two riders just needs to finish 11th or something or 12th, like it was last year, basically. <laughs> I'm going to make my first Larry prediction. You wanted Larry predictions, Matt. Here it Yay. is. 
Yes, please. Always, always. The championship will be decided in the sprint race at Valencia. <laughs> because by the time we get to Valencia, one of the two title contenders will have made a mistake while fighting for the win in either a sprint race or a main race. And it'll have just stretched the lead enough that it'll be decided in a sprint in Valencia on a Saturday. And it'll be quite um, anticlimactic, I think, as a result. Well, all Dorna will love it as a massive vindication of sprints, which actually, given that given how much of an importance sprints are playing in Martin's maths, yeah, eh, I don't know. I'm, we'll save this debate for postseason, but <laughs> we don't even have a sprint podium. I think without having a podium, oh yeah, okay, or anything, it's going to be a bit weird. Yeah, I don't know. Let's see. Hey, to be fair, nothing's ever going to be weirder than the giant dancing uh, CGI figure oh Fabio Quartararo uh, yeah that yeah, is whatever Fabio Quartararo on his titles nothing will ever be that weird so you know that's good yeah that was very very strange uh, one other final question on this particular topic do you expect them to keep it clean between themselves is this is this a title that you can see being resolved with a collision specifically rather than a, a mistake no they've, they've not really come particularly close to, to blows at any point if, if it's a collision, I think just probability and track record suggests it will be them colliding with somebody uninvolved. Like a Brad Binder or a, or a, Brad Binder or a Mark Marquez deciding to, to play their part in the, in the championship outcome. And I say deciding in air quotes, not like deciding anything, but just being their usual aggressive selves. And yeah. like a minor miscalculation or an over-exuberant defense from one of the two title contenders, something under pressure, that kind of thing. Uh, they could clash, absolutely possible. They're running close enough together on track on Sundays right now to where it's eminently possible, but it, there hasn't really, we haven't really seen reason to suspect it as anywhere near likely. Possible, yeah, sure, of course. Likely, probably not. Weirdly, I actually, considering Martina is the more aggressive of the two, I actually think if there is a clash, it'll be Bagnaya triggered um, because I, I think he's not as good at being super aggressive as martinez <laughs> we've seen him do it a bit recently and whenever he does it you're like "Ooh, that's a bit much whereas you see martina brad bender do it and you're like yeah that's martina brad bender doing what they yeah. do um I, I yeah i can see it just being if it comes down to it i can absolutely see peko having the aggressiveness to make a move but i can also see it not being as clean as it would be the other way around yeah, it's interesting. I, I definitely through the tie race was starting to think this is fine at the moment where both of them have good reason to stay on in terms of the points. But if this is happening in the in the Grand Prix at Valencia, where there's a where it's a bit more all or nothing, I could see some of those moves going going a bit more wrong. Where it was in less the other person's less interest to get out of the way. There's one other thing around Banyaya and Martin on a kind of cameo element that I wanted to discuss before we move away from the title fight, and that is the other factory Ducati of Ania Bastianini, who has been pretty much invisible, well, absent with injury for a lot of time, and then pretty much invisible when he has been around. He struggled in pre-season testing. We thought he just needed some time to get used to the bike. He didn't get that time because of injuries, and then since he has had that time, he hasn't seemed to progress. Now, this puts us in the real possibility of a satellite Ducati rider becoming world champion if Martin beats Banyaya and then still being on that satellite bike with the number one on it if he wants the number one next season which I still think is a really odd situation for Ducati and for its factory team sponsors to be in so is there still is there any possibility of Martin being popped into the factory team next season at Bastianini's expense if he wins the title should he be what do you reckon I mean, he absolutely should be. Um, it is it is a monumental mistake on Ducati's behalf that they've allowed it to get to this point where there, there's a possibility that he's not. Um, you know, we, we I think we've talked about it already that I I believe that Bastianini got lucky and that his injuries actually helped him keep his seat for next season because it hasn't given him a chance to really show himself um, and show what he was or wasn't capable of. Well, we've now had a bit of time for him to show what he is capable of once the decision has been made. And it turns out it's really not that spectacular. Um, I know he's on the back foot, but also, you know, he's qualifying last. That that shouldn't be at all. Yeah. Um, and Thailand was, was very striking, yeah, wasn't it, for this situation? it was. 
uh, you, you, you know, there's been some whispers that Ducati are already trying to find a way to fix that for next season. I would imagine knowing the way that their contracts are structured, it is doable. And, you know, Martin was very, very miffed when he didn't get the factory seat in the first place. Uh, he didn't say anything whenever they announced that it would definitely be Bastianini who'd get it next year. But I think that's more because he learned uh, that it didn't actually do him much good being quite publicly annoyed about it the first time around. <laughs> but, you know, my suspicions is that he hasn't got any less annoyed about it behind the scenes. And that, you know, there is going to be a push from in his camp to see him in factory colours for next season. Because otherwise it puts Ducati in a really difficult position in terms of promotion and in terms of, you know, using their, their reigning world champion to sell the brand. It means that, you know, if he wins the championship on a Primark bike and he goes on to ride a Primark bike next season, it means that all the photographs that Ducati distribute to dealerships around the world are of him on a factory, on a satellite bike winning the championship without the factory sponsors on it. Whereas you can rest assured that if they find a way to promote him onto the factory bike, um, it'll be the factory bike with the number one plate on it that goes out to all the dealerships. That'll be the, the photograph that is used for the next year's marketing campaign, because why wouldn't you do that right away? Um, it's, yeah, it, they've they've kind of put themselves in a really awkward position on this by, uh, by betting on Bastianini being better. And I, yeah... For, for me, they, they should be looking at a way to make a change. Val, when we discussed this before, you went on a, a monologue that lasted about 20 minutes uh, involving the phrase, don't do it, repeatedly. <laughs> now, things have moved on a bit since then in terms of Bastianini's struggle continuing and Martin suddenly looking like he might win the championship. Do you, are you still firmly in the don't do it camp? Yeah. Yeah. They have, Jorge Martin and his camp have no leverage, so I don't see any reason to, to do anything. And I'm, I'm, I, can't, I can't say I'm particularly bothered or interested in the promotional headaches of, of Ducati in this particular regard. If you're champions, you're champions, you'll figure it out. You'll send the Pramac bike if you have to. It's fine. It's in fact, if anything, it's it's, you know, Gigi Delinia should be particularly happy to see two different colors bikes that he both designed win championships in, in successive years. Um I just I again I think Jorge Martin has has no particular leverage here. I think he'll be happy enough if he's champion. If 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 he's champion in a way to where they are a hundred percent certain they want him long term stuff from a 2025 deal immediately easy he'll sign it because it's a ducati factory deal so do it immediately and he'll sign it and you'll have your lineup of martin and banyaya for however long you want what is he gonna do is he gonna go to repsol honda replace mark marquez is he gonna do that what's he gonna do yamaha what's he gonna do he already didn't go to yamaha uh you know uh I think the more uncomfortable situation is if he loses the title and he's grumpy because of that. He's also grumpy because of the lack of the Ducati factory status. And he'll look at his results relative to Enea Bastianini's results and and he'll he'll feel multiple times more aggrieved. But if he's yeah, if he's champion, yeah, it's fine. It's it solves everything, it fixes everything, and it, it'll show to him that another year at Pramac is actually no problem. I, I, I don't think they should do it. But but I if they do do it, I I can't argue with the with the current stretch of results. You know, Ine Bastianini has been on a back foot because of the injury. I think he would have been considerably better if he had done the full season. But I don't think he would have been at Jorge Martin level because that's how the season began already with Martin more comfortable. And I I can't imagine Bastianini would have had the same trajectory as Martin over the season. So I think the gulf would have been quite significant. But it's it's massive now, obviously. Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there where the, the problems will be worse next year if he doesn't win the championship because he will absolutely have people telling him that the reason he lost the championship is because he didn't have the support of a factory team versus a satellite team. Um, there'll be voices in his, in his ear telling him that. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of inside Ducati, it's an argument I would imagine based on what we've seen in the past, it'll be one of those uh, racing boss Gigi Delinia versus actual Ducati boss Claudio Domenicali fights that, you know, we've, we've seen with over Jorge Lorenzo and we've seen over trying to sign Mark Marquez where two sides of the, the factory have had vastly different opinions. Uh, although in every one of those, Domenicali has been the one who has ultimately won. Mark Marquez is on a Ducati next year and Jorge Lorenzo got, you know, let go by the team. Um it's yeah it's a tricky one and it's one that i'm glad i don't have to sort out 
because I think there is a bit of leverage. I think that the uh, the Jorge Martin leverage will be very public rumors about him in talks early next season with KTM. <laughs> he is a KTM product. He was brought up through the KTM system. Ooh. And the reason he left was yeah, to true. jump onto a MotoGP bike that, that was capable of winning on, which at the time was Ducati. But right now, arguably, especially by the time we get to 2025, will be an orange bike as well. Yeah, I, I had to say I'm very much with you on this, Simon. I think this is a headache for Ducati. I, I, I don't, I probably need to think of sporting purity more often in life, but I really don't in this case. I think Ducati sponsors and Ducati senior, senior management will look at the the number one being on a red, purple and white bike, not a red one and go, mm, that's, this is not what, this is not what we're paying for exactly. Um, that All that said, Sympathy for Bastianini. He is not a bad rider. His record through the junior classes and his first two years of MotoGP was superb. Um, I, I thought he'd beat Banyaya to this year's championship when he signed for the factory team. It hasn't happened. It, in MotoGP, you, you sometimes don't click with a particular year's bike or a team set up. These, this is one of the most human forms of motorsport. And if things aren't quite right in your environment, in your head, you can ship so much lap time. And it really feels like that is what has happened in this case. If they did do a swap, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him absolutely flying on the Pramac bike next season, um, unless it's too much of a too much of a blow they could go two ways couldn't it? either as the encouragement of proving a point or the massive blow of the team not having had faith in you but yeah i th- i actually i don't see a reason not to engineer a swap if martin is world champion uh, mark marquez has made quite a few appearances in this podcast already as ever so let's let's head his way um, he's heading into his final three grand prix weekends as a honda rider at least for now we have speculated a bit that he'll find a way back there eventually um we'll, we've talked a lot about how he'd fare on ducati let's talk now about the end of his honda career now he's had some much more encouraging results and performances in the last little while how do you two see this ending? What, what what kind of results are you expecting from Marquez in his final few Grand Prix with Honda? Oh, what a what a terrible answer I'm going to give right now. Who cares? It doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, I'm not I'm not saying who cares, and I'm not saying you've asked a bad question, but like, you know, we're we're running out the clock here. It's it's whatever. The the Marquez Honda legacy is written by now. He could win these final three races and it doesn't really make a huge difference. And he's not going to win these final three races. And he's not going to stand on the podium in these final three races. Might at Valencia, potentially. Uh, I think he expects Qatar and Sepang to be painful because of, because of what the bike is lacking. I think he expects Valencia to be decent. In which case it's good. You know, it's, it's how you would place them if that's the expectation. You'd rather get the two sort of wasteful ones out of the way first and just get them done and then have go for one final moment of heroics uh on a honda a valencia before hopping onto the good bike in the in the pre in the off season in the postseason that took me three attempts to say um yeah i think honestly it's just it's i don't know it's maybe i'm being wrong it's difficult to care (laughs) i I don't know. I don't. I don't like. You're too much into sporting purity and the kind of irrelevance of this stint. Whereas I'm into storyline purity, and this is just too too seismic a move not no, to have an it... interesting final chapter. I think he'll win no, Valencia. I've decided that the sheer power of storyline, he's going to win Valencia, or at least be such an annoyance yeah, to Peko but... and Martin there that he somehow screws it up for one of them. If I can actually see a situation where he screws it up for one of them, but it'll be because they're both having one of those super nervous, super weird last round of the year with a championship on the battle, um, on the line battles where they're like fighting for ninth and he's with them because there is no way that there's a, there's no way that there's an Alex Rins at Suzuki fairy tale end into this season for Mark Marquez and the Honda, the, the three circuits that are left, Nah, there's just no way that he's going to be deliver going to be able to deliver anything really spectacular from them, as far as I'm concerned. I just can't see it. Um, if we were finishing the season at, you know, Aragon, Saxon Ring, and and Circuit of the Americas, it might be a bit different, but we're not. And I just, yeah, I don't think he's going to be there. Um, in a way, it's a bit unfortunate because with the form that he has right now, I feel like. Um, you know, if we were finishing this the, the championship at those three circuits, there is every possibility that there would be a dream, you know, 
dream final win on the table because he's riding the Honda better than he's been riding it, arguably since you know since those wins sort of end of twenty twenty one. But we're not at those tracks. We're not at tracks where the Honda's going to fare very well, and I'd be very surprised. Very very surprised. So you see this as more of a kind of what's he done recently? He's been, he's made a few top five appearances recently. I I the other thing that I'm banking on a little bit as well as the sheer power of fairy tale is the weather. I know rain isn't rain gives you a sort of fifty fifty Marquez chance of him leading the race and throwing it off the road or or actually doing something heroic. But at least you know two two of these races have a very strong chance of being rain affected in some way. Yeah, Marquez, I know a lot has changed since then, but look at what Marquez did out of the blue at Portimao. Well, I don't mean like smashing into everybody. I mean the qualifying pace. This is this is Mark Marquez. Crazy things are possible. And yeah. yeah, I I I, I still th- I also think that he now the decision is done and he's got through that weird social media teasing phase, his little announcement he made about how much it actually meant to him and how significant leaving Honda and leaving his, most of his crew behind would be, I think it gave me the impression that after all that rhetoric about how desperate he was to leave, he did actually want this to end well. Now that the now that decision was made, he could actually go back to being a bit more human about the whole thing. And I, I, I can see him being desperately disappointed if this does end on, on some kind of massive low. Maybe, but... Uh... I, I mean, he probably does care more than me. I'll, you know, I'll give him that 100%. I just, the way I see it is, there's no big milestone to fight for, nothing in the championship, nothing really anywhere in terms of like statistical legacy, Mark's legacy with Honda, whether he comes back or doesn't come back, Mark's, you know, what he's achieved with Honda, that's not changing over these three final rounds. The only way it would meaningfully change is if the 13 riders ahead of him in the standings were all disqualified. That's that's real. That's you know that's the only way because yeah. uh, you know what's the book has been written for now. Maybe we'll reconvene for a for a sequel, but the book is written. Uh, if he finishes top five three times in a row, great, well done, fantastic show, great rider. If he crashes out of the top five three times in a row, which is also eminently possible, doesn't really also tell us anything new, does it? So that's that's probably that's why I'm so boring about this. <laughs> is Nothing that'll happen feels like it would tell me anything, right? There's no, there's no continuity here, no future intrigue being set up. Like this stint is just over and it's ending, and it's ending with, for Suzuki at least, wins historically were uh, I don't want to say relative rarity, but like they were, they're more, they're worth more than for for Honda by itself as a as a as a even in its current state. Honda's won a lot of premier class races, including even this season they've won one. So it wouldn't even it wouldn't even tick off that particular box. I don't know. It look it'd be cool. He'd you know, he'd really enjoy it. I think a lot of people would really enjoy it. Maybe it'll feel would feel like a a weight lifted off their shoulders. But I you, you can tell from my voice I'm really struggling to get like really worked up about it. I've got a solution, Val. I can get you excited. Let's talk about Fermin Eldiger. Uh, ah. We have. We have breaks in these episodes when we're recording to slot adverts in to plan the next section sometimes if we're doing things on the hoof a bit. And in one of the ad breaks in the last episode, I had to say to Val, can you stop banging on about Fermin Eldiger because we need to record the rest of the episode and he's not relevant right now. He is this week because he has been linked with the with the Mark Marquez seat. Um, for the benefit of people who don't follow Moto2, Moto3, Val, give us a little uh, rundown on Eldiger. And then, should we take these reports seriously? You know, we were thinking Fabio De Giantonio was a was a shoe in for the Marquez seat after recent weeks, but Eldergo has emerged as a contender in some parts of the media. Well, yeah. So reports are, I think, Spanish journalist Ricard Hove, is it? Am I, am I saying that correctly? I can't see if Simon is nodding or not. He is nodding now, so it is. I guess Hove. Ricard Hove was the first one to to suggest that Fermin Aldegar has a concrete offer from Honda, and now. It seems to have been corroborated by Speedweek that indeed there's some sort of chat going on, which uh, I find eminently believable. Not just because of the because of the strength of the reporting, but also because it makes total sense to me. That's what I would do, and that's how MotoGP normally operates. Fermin Aldeguer is really young. He is, I think, the third youngest rider to start a Moto2 race this season. He is in his 
I think second full Moto2 season, but like third Moto2 season, really, if we're being honest. Before that, he won the European Moto2 Championship, so he didn't do Moto3, and he's he's a, he's really, really young. He's 18. If he does get signed to MotoGP, he will be 18 when he makes his debut still. Um, he's been on the speed-up Boscoscuro bikes, which are you know quite the Moto2 curiosity. There are some tracks where they just absolutely tear it up, and they have been very good at unearthing very interesting talent. Most notably... As of late, Fabio Quartararo is a product, it is a MotoGP consequence of the Bosco Scuro going really well at certain tracks and suddenly thrusting Quartararo, who before that hadn't really shown much in Moto2, into a MotoGP conversation. How did that work for, for Yamaha and for Patronus Yamaha? Wonderfully. Fantastic. Uh, so that's that's one reason why I think Honda would make a lot of sense to look at Fermin Aldeguer. He's young, he's clearly a raw and tap talent. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. He's emerging. He's He was already exciting in Moto2 at the start of his tenure, but sort of very, very uneven and being a little bit outmatched by teammate Alonso Lopez for big stretches. But now it looks like in his current form, he's really nailed the timing. He looks really, really good as of late. He should have won in Phillip Island if the if the weather was normal. He did win in, in Thailand. <laughs> He's, he's very interesting and he's clearly very, very talented. And it it would be it would be a bit of a crazy move, but I've I've been consistent on this. I think if Mark Marquez is leaving, Honda needs to figure out who it's going to build its next bikes for. And, and if that's the case, then getting your long-term option in right now and trying something with it and seeing what you know what they like, I think is the is the correct way forward. Uh I am surprised that. It hasn't come to it being Ayogura. I think the fact that we're now talking about a potential Fermin Aldeguer promotion to Honda says a lot about how much Ayogura does not want to ride a Honda in MotoGP, I suspect. Haven't heard him say anything like that, but I, I can't imagine any other reasonable explanation as to why he's, you know, he's not really even been in the conversation for a MotoGP promotion with the with Honda. And Fermin Aldeguer is now popping up on the radar. It just it makes a lot of sense to me as an option to sound out. The mechanics of it you have to look at and you have to really weigh up whether the experience of Fabio Di Gian Antonio, the Ducati experience and the MotoGP experience and just the age is maybe as a one-year stopgap maybe is more rational and then seek out the, the free agent market in in 25. But it makes like it makes a lot of sense to look at, at the hot thing in, in Moto 2. And yeah, it would be reactionary. Yeah, it would be just, you know, seeing a rider who's gone well in recent races and going, I want that rider. But that works. Or at least it has worked with Fabio Quartararo. It, it worked in a specific, very specific circumstance when that rider kind was of. put on what was then a very good bike as well. Simon, I get the feeling you're you're not as sure about this. You've hit the nail on the head, Matt. Fabio Quartararo went from a uh, speed up as it was at the time Moto2 bike um, onto a very good Yamaha and was very good. Whereas Fermin Aldeguer will go from what is now Bosque Scuro, but it's still speed up onto the, you know, the big orange mess, the, the worst MotoGP bike that we've seen Honda produce maybe ever. Um, it, if they sign him, it will... To me, it sends a message. It's one of two things. Either they are supremely confident in Aldegar's abilities to an extent that no one else seems to be. Uh, and if that were the case, uh, I can't see why someone else hasn't tried to put him on a MotoGP bike for next season already instead of leaving it to this extent. I don't think that it's necessarily his recent results that have, you know, that have, that have really flagged this up. Um, I think if he was, if, if people smarter than me and better able to spot talent than me were able to look at uh, I and mean, see something, it, it wouldn't just be seen now, it would have been seen earlier than this and he wouldn't be, you know, scrabbling for a Honda. It also says to me, we, you know, that's one option. The, the other option is that if he's just another fast Moto2 kid, and I don't mean that to demean him, but there's a lot of fast Moto2 kids, if they're just signing him because he's the fastest available Moto2 kid, the way that they just signed Alex Marquez because he was the fastest available Moto2 kid at the end of twenty at the end of twenty nineteen to replace the the suddenly departing Jorge Lorenzo, then it 
it sends a message about how incredibly unserious the current Repsol Honda team are about actually fixing the mess that they're in. Because hiring a rookie who's 18 years old, who's still super rough around the edges and expecting him to help make your bike better. That is not, that is a bold strategy. That is not a smart move. Uh, when you've got Fabio Di Antonio, who is absolutely not the best rider in the 2023 MotoGP grid. I don't think that's in any way offensive to him, but he knows the Michelin tires. He knows how to stop a MotoGP bike. He knows what carbon brakes feels like. He knows how aerodynamics affect a, a machine as you're entering a corner. He knows how to activate a ride height device as you're coming out of a corner. He knows how to ride a MotoGP bike. And they're going to lose, you know, they're going to lose essentially, what, six months, nine months of next year teaching Aldegar just how to be a MotoGP rider. By which point it's going to be completely possible that they're looking elsewhere to, to find a replacement anyway, because uh, the market's open and there's suddenly free agents again. It, it would be, yeah, it would be a totally stupid move if they're signing him because they think that he's a good Moto2 rider. It could be a genius move if they're signing him because they think he's the next coming of Mark Marquez. But no one else has said that. No one else has made that sort of claim about him ever. Um, and yeah, it, it to me, it actually, more than losing Mark Marquez, this is maybe like Alberto Puig putting his career on the line territory. Because if he, you know, a guy who notoriously likes having Spaniards and only Spaniards inside his garage, hires another Spaniard over an available Italian. Um, and, and Japan kind of see that and are unhappy about it. It's a strange, you know, if it doesn't pay off, it's kind of hard to see how he keeps his job afterwards. To be perfectly honest. It's for me, this is that level of, of serious. And, uh, Val, you mentioned, you know, sort of betting on the future and hiring someone to to keep as a bit of a long-term strategy. They've already got that person, Ishwan Mir. He's a world champion. He's still only super young. He knows how to develop a bike. He's, you know, he's he's been in a factory team where he's kind of led development before in the past. They, they don't need anyone else. They have, for me, they have got their number one for the future. And I don't see a reason to mess with that. I think I think Mir would be really unhappy if if it's Aldeguer. I think that would that would not show him the the right direction of the of the project if if that happened because he did go on record as saying that he would prefer an ex experienced rider and Fabio Giannantonio is vastly more experienced than Fermin Aldeguer. Even if you don't count his two MotoGP seasons, effectively Fabio Giannantonio yeah, is vastly yeah, more experienced yeah. than than Fermin Aldeguer. Uh, but look, I. I'm not saying it would be like a quarter hour level of success. I'm just saying that Yamaha stumbling backwards into Fabio Quartararo has to be a lesson here somewhere in some form, which is that you have to you have to take a shot, especially when you're a manufacturer down on its luck, which I think, well, Yamaha wasn't at that point, but it was going to be in the future. Let's be honest. If Petronas Yamaha does not pick Fabio Quartararo at that point, okay, there's some other scenarios opening up, but the chances are really good right now that Yamaha's title drought is now since 2015 instead of since, you know, since 2021. Very good chance. Very good chance they do not get their champion rider. And then however Quattararo's Moto2 career unfolds, there's a good chance somebody else picks him up. And oops, disaster, real bad. Aldegar has clearly a lot of talent. I think that much is obvious. Uh, probably not like Pedro Costa level, but again, he's won two Moto2 races already at the age of 18, which is, it's not normal not really supposed to work like that most of the time. Um, if if you put him on the bike and it, it doesn't work and he's slow, like uh, let's let's not go with the, like, the worst case scenario of he keeps hurting himself because he can't stay on the bike, which is unfortunately quite possible with the Honda. It's, it's a tough one, but there is maybe an impression that a rookie might actually tame it better because he, he his brain isn't scrambled by the knowledge of much better bikes that allow him to do much more. Let's let's take the, the hurt himself out of the equation now. Let's suggest, you know, he's just slow, right? Well, so be it. You roll the dice. The, the season's, it's not a write-off, but 
they're not achieving anything in 2024 that matters apart from setting up the future and figuring out what their future rider lineup is. Uh, like the only reason I would sound out John Muir on this, but what if John Muir isn't the guy? What if John Muir just has the same season that he had this year? And then look, then you need a new franchise rider anyway. And you did not roll the dice on potentially maybe the most talented guy out there who isn't Pedro Acosta. I mean, that's entirely possible. That's just, I'm not saying they definitely must do it. Like I, I, I would make, I, I'd like to make that very, very clear. I think if they do go for Fabio Di Gian Antonio, it's a fine pragmatic choice as a one-year stopgap. I think Fermin Aldeguer should consider that maybe he does not want to be a potential one-year stopgap. That's also important to consider. But I would, I'd, I'd check, I'd sound it out. It makes sense to me as a, a sort of lay of the land type of decision. I would, I'd, I'd consider it. Or that's what I'm doing right now. I'm considering it. And it is, there is a certain degree of it that's quite, quite tempting. And at the very best ceiling of the outcome, Fabio Di Antonio, really good rider, good, you know, good record in very good form right now. He will not be your franchise savior. The next supernova, super talent rider can be, especially if you build a bike around them. Fermin Aldeguer is probably not that because most riders are not that. You cannot really, you cannot count on it. But with the upside like that, it's it's worth considering the punt, right? There's, for me, there's a, there's an easy solution here um, that, that, that's sort of staring us all in the face, but Honda haven't been, haven't made it. Um, Johan Zarco signed in a two-year deal to Honda with an option for a third year. Take the third year and the option right now. He'll appreciate that. Send him to Repsol Honda next season and say, hey, look, you might be back at LCR the year after, but you've got another year after that. You're here for three years now. And then put Eldegaard to LCR. And Lucio Cecanello will not be happy. But, you know, on the same hand, Honda is saving 25 million euros by not paying Mark Marquez's salary next year. So just sponsor Cecanello's team. Just be the title sponsor of LCR Honda next year on Zarco's side of the garage. Because you can afford to and have, you know, still have million, tens of millions of euros left over. Why not do it that way? Put him into the satellite team. Don't give him the pressure of being a Repsol Honda rider who's potentially only there for one year or feels like he's a stopgap. Use Sarko, use your experienced guy to develop the bike. Do it that way. That that, you know, for me, that's the sensible solution if you really want Aldiger. And yeah, it's not ideal if you're Fabio Di Gentonio, but you know, that's the way that builds a path to making the bike better. And right now sticking a rookie into Repsol Honda at 18 years old ain't the path to make the bike better. So Honda and Yamaha are actually locked in the tightest significant championship battle of anything in the MotoGP world at the moment because they're just one point apart, but they're one point apart fighting to not be last in the manufacturer's championship a position that Honda occupied last year. And last year, at Yamaha was absolutely nowhere near. Honda is one point ahead at the moment. Quick prediction that you're welcome to expand on a little bit as well. Simon, you first. Who's going to be last this year, Honda or Yamaha? Whoa. I mean, I, I, I think we're going to end up with some sort of a weird scenario where Honda are going to be ahead of Yamaha because of the points scored by Iker Lacona. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be something bizarre like that because that's just the way this season delivers. Um, Yamaha's Yamaha's big weakness is two bikes. Yeah, you know, they're that that more than anything else is is such a recipe for disaster because there's no fallback, there's no margin, uh, and I think just just by dint of having four bikes, Honda have a bit of margin. You know, they've got Takanakigami who will always be in the points somehow on a Sunday, regardless of how bad everything is for the Honda guys. So if three other Hondas crash out, it just moves him from 15th to 12th and he scores some points. Uh, Yamaha don't have any benefit of, you know, they've, they've no cushion. Val, what's your prediction? I think uh, Yamaha is going to win this battle and Honda will be left with the wooden spoon, but it, it really is a, a 50-50 shot because the, 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 the more bikes argument is, is, you know, it's an important one and it's it very well can make the difference. I think the, 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 where I'm coming at from this is the M1's just better. <laughs> that's that's really my only my only 
reason for picking Yamaha over Honda. The M1's just better. Uh, Fabio is quicker on Sundays than than Mark. So that's that's why I think that they'll probably win. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. It's just a really funny battle to be commenting on. I mean, this time last year, I suddenly noticed that Honda ended up last. And like, for ever, even with all the things that happened to Honda, I still couldn't quite believe that. And this year, realizing it's those two fighting at the bottom is still something that feels like it's taken six months to sink in. I'm with you, Val. I think Yamaha is the better bike. I know we're comparing <laughs> two messes in different colors, but I do think Yamaha is a better bike. But I think Yamaha is going to lose because I think Marquez has more incentive to do something to make something really interesting happen at the moment than Quattararo. Quattararo is busy finding new ways to threaten he's going to leave Yamaha every week. Marquez has got that time out of his system now. and he, I, I, like, I, I've predicted already he's going to win Valencia, so I may as well stick with that. Hadn't I? That'll be what seals a glorious fourth for Honda. Um, let's take another prediction. This is, <laughs> I'm ending on some downers here. Will we actually see the 2023 MotoGP rider lineup ever race together? Um Recording this just after news that Alex Rins will miss another two events, meaning if he does return, it'll only be for Valencia. And that means at least for the next two races, we're going to carry on this trend that the original 2023 lineup has never made it even into a qualifying session. Now, I'm going to... I agree with anything anyone's about to say about this year's injury rate and the reasons for it, and it being a real worry for MotoGP. But I also think this is not the stat that proves that. I think this stat is actually totally misleading because this stat has happened because Paul Espargaro was out for a very long time with one severe injury and Alex Rins is now out for a very long time with another severe injury and the overlap between those situations means that we've never had the full rider lineup. I, I, we, we, I don't have a count on me of how many other riders have been out injured. I just know it's way too many. Um, but this is kind of our way of talking about Rins. Is he going to... If he Presumably he wants to test the Yamaha straight after Valencia, so he's got to race at Valencia, surely, to, to do that. Uh, what's going to happen is that uh, he's he's going to announce on the Sunday of uh, Qatar that he has COVID and has to isolate for 10 days and will come out of isolation <laughs> on the Monday post-Valencia and uh, therefore be fit to ride the Yamaha for the first time. Um, yeah, he, he joking aside, he has to ride at Valencia to ride the Yamaha, really. Otherwise, it's super cheeky. Although, you know, it's super cheeky to an employer that you're no longer working for, so who cares? Um, he will be able to make some sort of an excuse about how he, he can't do race distance, uh, but he can ride five laps at a time, and, and because of that, he's able to test the Yamaha. That would be my, you know, actual strategy if, if you were going to try and do it. <sighs> There's just no point in risking getting hurt again on that Honda. Um, it, it just looks like the most unpleasant experience ever riding it at the minute. Um, the the so I need to update the numbers. The last time I checked, um, looking at the bigger picture, going back to earlier in the season, the injury rate, the the number of races missed due to injury this season is about four and a half times higher than it has been at any point in the last ten years. Like this season has been heavily, heavily, heavily attritional. And, you know, it's worth remembering that, that there has been races this season where both Paul Spagaro and Alex Rins have been present and there's always been someone else who's injured as well because that's been the nature of this season. In fact, there's been two or three of them in the last few weeks where someone else has always been hurt as well. True. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, if you look back to the start, in fact, I think if you look back to the start of the year and take Paul out of it, there's probably always, there might not have been a, a situation where there was a full grid anyway, because we had Marquez who had hurt, was hurt. We had Bastianini who was hurt. Um, we had Oliveira miss a couple of races. We had uh, Raul Fernandez go home early at Le Mans because of arm pump surgery complications. Uh, this has been a really, really horribly nasty season where just people have been broken. Um and next year's going to be worse because there's going to be, what, four more races next season. Yay. <laughs> bleakness, well, not bleakness aside, bleakness sort of continuing. It's, <laughs> I really hope that in this situation that Rins is fit enough to do a decent test on the Yamaha. I, I feel like the, the Rins thing is a really sad story this year. I, he may have spent the entire final two thirds of the season crashing that Honda out of 15th place 
But the fact that he did win with it so quickly, I, I really felt like Renz could make a rare positive contribution to the Honda story. And I was really pleased for him. I felt he massively deserved to be the person who was th- that shock winner at Austin. And it's just ended up a really horrible injury that's dragged on and on. And the 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 fact that when he had to pull out last time, it was a bit unclear what was causing the new pain. It, was just, it feels like one of those injuries you really want to see him back on the bike and just know that everything's working before you can even make too many predictions about about next year because I'd love to see him thrive at Yamaha. Yeah, I think he will. I think I think even if he misses the test, I think he'll he'll adapt pretty well. And I think that way because of how well he's adapted to Honda this year in the limited time he he has had with it. And I think if he did the full season, I do not imagine he would have been running it to 15th every every weekend. I think he w- I suspect he would have been a pretty easy pick for you know a top 10 rider of the year. I, I suspect that's that's my suspicion. Um, yeah, I I think when we're going to see the 2023 grid in full, racing is probably 2024 when Paul Fargo <laughs> is doing a wild card. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the best I got. Yeah, it's not it's not been nice. It's not not been nice. It's a lot of pain, a lot of broken bones, a lot of surgeries. Let's uh, let's hope 2024 is just. Uh, a little. I don't know if there's reason to think it'll be better, but let's hope it's maybe a little luckier. Even though, yeah, we're, we're lucky enough in the sense that nobody's had like life completely changing injuries or worse. So, so I've I've just had a quick glance um, because I knew that I was keeping a record of this somewhere. Um, I've been keeping a spreadsheet this season of, of when people have been missing races. And what I'll do is whenever we post the podcast, I'll uh, I'll tweet out the a picture of the the spreadsheet as well. And every single one of the, the races in the first 10 races of the season where Paul Espagaro was sidelined due to injury, there was at least one other rider who was also injured. Um, and there was one, two, there was two of those races, three of those races where there was three riders, another three riders injured. And there was one of those races where there was another four riders injured. So even without his big life-threatening injury that wiped out the first half of his season, it has still been just horrifically bad. It's been yeah, it's been an unnerving one right from, right from the very start. It's been a little bit better recently, but it's been it's been a, an edgy season. One last prediction: then we're on a run of a lot of Ducati victories in Grand Prix terms. Ducati's only lost three races this year: one to that amazing Rins Honda win, two to Aprilia, which means KTM hasn't actually won a Grand Prix this year. Are you two expecting a clean sweep for Ducatis in the remaining six races, or can you see someone else getting in there? Val, you go first with this one. Yeah, I, I I would not be surprised if KTM and Radbender specifically win Valencia because Martin and Pagliaia are, are both having very difficult weekends, very, very in their head, sort of having to worry more about the points than, than the win. So I wouldn't be surprised there. Yeah, I think six races. You'd think Binder in his current form with the new KTM chassis, you'll get at least one of those. But far from guaranteed, Ducati's still very good. Don't really see Aprilia doing it. Don't really see Honda or Yamaha doing it for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think maybe a shot that KTM will get one of the one of the six. Simon, I I think for for me KTM have a really good chance at Valencia. Um, it's a track that they test at, which is always something that that helps them out. Um, it's a track where the bike has gone quite well in the past. Um, yeah, that that for me. Uh, that for me is, is got a bit of potential. Yeah, we're going to end on a note of agreement. I think there will be one more upset, and I think it has to be Binder and KTM. I'd be annoyed, frankly, if Binder ends this year still with that wind drought in Grand Prix going on, because it's ridiculous that it's now over two years with the quality of his riding and the quality of progress that KTM has made in its fits and starts. The, this KTM story is one I've been waiting to come to fruition for too long now. Can Binder, KTM, just do what you did in Thailand every weekend, please? Watch out for those white lines on the last lap and actually mount a title threat because surely, surely you've got you you are gonna be capable of it. I've I've actually got a, a question for you two. Um on the topic of Larry predictions and surprise endings to the season. Um, how do we think that wildcard world superbike champion Alvaro Batista is gonna do this weekend in Malaysia? Ooh. Real well. <laughs> I think real, real well. Yeah, uh, me too. That's sound why I'm testing like he's sound. Sounded from testing like he's he showed some serious speed. He's obviously he's not going to be 
much slower as a rider than he was when he did his Ducati factory appearance as an injury replacement for Jorge Lorenzo at Phillip Island. It's great there. I I think it'll go real well. I mean, I don't know what I don't know how to quantify real well, but I think certainly I would be surprised if he spends much of that weekend outside of the top ten. Well, it feels like he's got the potential to have the sort of speed that Danny Pedrosa had when he turned up with the KTM, but without the race rustiness, because of course he's, he's yeah. far from race rusty. Um, I just wonder, I can't, obviously I can't see him being on the title contender's pace, but there's certainly a lot of other Ducatis he could he could upstage. But yeah, thank you for reminding us of that storyline, as if we needed more storylines. <laughs> We're going to end up in some bizarre world where the, the 2023 MotoGP Riders Championship is going to be decided by the points taken off of title contender by Alvaro Podista and the points gained by another title contender <laughs> from uh, Brad Binder's last lap penalty in Thailand. Well, this season's trying to do a 20, uh, 2006 tribute enough. There's, this is kind of its way of doing a Troy Bayless cameo, basically, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, nothing wrong with that, because that's absolutely gone oh down in God, history. Oh, God, that's exactly what this is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, if only it was there for the last round. That's what we that's what we need uh right thank you Val thank you Simon if, if, if he wins if he wins a Belize he might be there for the last round well yeah yeah very true um thank you Val thank you Simon thank you listeners um we've got three more weeks of this to go and then it'll all be settled I really hope it does go down to the wire I I, I feel like if if Banyaya pulls a little further ahead at Sepang this coming weekend it's starting to the narrative is slipping it's harder for Martin to pull it back if if Martin keeps closing up then I really think it's game on for the last two rounds and we we might even be down to that very last lap waiting to see which of them will overtake Bautista who is still there for some reason for the points for the points they need to become world champion we'll be back straight after the Malaysian Grand Prix this coming weekend to debate and argue and make Larry predictions about everything that's happened in the latest twist in the 2023 MotoGP season look forward to speaking to you then The Athletic.